Hall, and welcome to the Musician Health Resource Podcast, where each week we sit down with experts from the field of performing arts medicine and together uncover the latest medical information, talk through recent studies, and provide proven ways musicians can decrease physical and mental stress and pain in their music practice to increase joy, play, sound, and artistic ability. If you've been enjoying these podcasts, learning beneficial information, or find the topics relevant to yourself and other music educators, please share. The best advertising is always a personal referral, and I ask you to consider taking a moment to subscribe, leave a review, or share the links on your social media pages. That way, this information can move up the algorithm and reach a larger audience. For show notes on what you hear today, please head to musicianhealthresource.com. Last episode, we discussed joint laxity and hypermobility and the musculoskeletal effects on the musician with Dr. Jeff Russell of Ohio University's Shape Clinic. If you're a music educator or physical therapist or even a musician who has encountered pain and suspect it might have something to do with that thrown-out term being double-jointed, you don't want to miss that episode. We break down the terminology and frequent results of hypermobility, discuss the high rates of physical pain and chronic symptoms affecting the musician community, and provide practical ways of prevention and recovery, so be sure to head to our website for show notes or take a listen to the interview. This week's podcast guest is Nabil Zudi, who is currently working towards the world's first doctoral degree in performing arts health at the University of North Texas. He has a long and successful career as a classical guitarist and music educator, and his prior work in performing arts medicine includes several studies into the musculoskeletal locations of pain in musicians. His recent work focuses on streamlining the history and terminology of music performance anxiety and working towards clarification and qualification of these symptoms for music educators, musicians, and clinicians. Nabil, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I really want to talk about your research on music performance anxiety or MPA, specifically as a different form of anxiety to maybe what the general population thinks about because there's a lot of terminology that's been thrown out or words used to describe MPA. So why is it important to qualify all this past research, the streamlining of stage fright versus music performance anxiety? Well, uh, we have to ask ourselves, uh, why, what do we want from this research on music performance anxiety? For example, for music educators, maybe they would want to uh, build in in their curriculum um, strategies uh, or ways to uh, minimize the debilitating effect of music from anxiety. And if this research or this body of knowledge is not clear or inconsistent in its terminology or its findings, uh, they might find difficulty in doing that or some challenges. Um, so the motivation for this, to do this, uh, qualitative, quantitative research of the, uh, research review of uh, music performance anxiety, uh, came from a study that I conducted on classical guitarists and found that some classical guitarists had, uh, a positive effect on, uh, of music performance anxiety. So, uh, 17% of out of uh, 190 classical guitars said that music anxiety helped their playing. 
And so when I went back to um, to explain these results, I found that the, the the research on that subject is not quite clear. So uh, uh, we did that. Besides, it's a it's a, a normal, essential, very important practice in in any research is just to go and see where 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 what had been done. What does this research offer? Uh, how how is it applicable? Uh, what what needs to be done to improve it? So we need to go back and see the history of it to see uh, what theories are out there and what are the the arguments, the important arguments regarding the sub the matter subject. All that so it helps uh, uh, music educators. And it helps also researchers who are interested in this subject. So, for example, uh, let's see. So you can see that there's inconsistency in the just the terminology that's just to start with. While some researchers refers to music performance anxiety as stage fright, other uh, scholars think about it that it, uh, stage fright is just the debilitating active uh, part, the, the the bad part of of music performance anxiety. Um, we've seen uh, uh, researchers saying things such as, for example, uh, "Hey, music performance anxiety is very problematic, is a problem, is very serious that musicians are suffering from, and we need to find ways to." eliminated or treated uh, while others are saying uh, wait uh, not all aspect of of that is necessarily bad it could be also in fact even facilitative it could help performance um, and so this inconsistency in conceptualizing music performance anxiety is making the whole pro progress even slower uh, in in finding interventions or in finding for clinicians or in finding uh, strategies for uh, music educators to uh, to minimize it to minimize the debilitating effect of it. Um, so when we um, did this review, we found that this diversion in in the in the conceptualizing is traceable back to the to the backgrounds of these researchers so scientific or to the to to the disciplinary backgrounds of these researchers for example research that's coming from uh clinical backgrounds from uh, maybe psychological psychologists uh clinicians um are considering MPA or music performance anxiety as one whole unit as a bad uh, thing that needs to be treated. It's a problem that needs to be treated while uh, studies coming from uh, music educators uh, are not necessarily conceptualizing this way. They're actually seeing that, hey, no, it has, uh, it's more multidimensional. It has, it also has directionality. So it has a uh, a bad part to it, but it also has a good part to it. It might debilitate or facilitate facilitate performance. 
Can you speak a little bit to the difference then between what would be considered facilitative versus debilitative in a performance atmosphere? Well, there is uh, uh, this uh, uh, idea or this notion of uh, facilitative versus debilitative forms of anxiety is not new. Um, it actually started in the 60s around there and then uh, it has been applied to musicians by uh, uh, different authors. And um, for example, there's a conceptual framework of music performance anxiety, I think in 2007, that was suggested by Papa Georgi and colleagues, states that either depending on intrinsic and extrinsic factors, intrinsic factors relates to the personality, to the individual differences, uh, and extrinsic, it, it more refers to environment, the environment surrounding the performance. And depending on these, uh, there is uh, uh, the, the perform, the, the manifestation of anxiety uh, appears either in a, in a debilitating way that, uh, for example, you know, make somebody uh, lose control or have a heightened arousal. Uh, that, uh, you know, make them lose focus and, you know, ruin musicality or it might drive the performance or might um, um, uh, actually enhance performance in ways that it increases, uh, for example, focus. Uh, it um, increases musicality or the quality of the performance as all. Well in 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 whole um and depending on these factors and these uh, intrinsic factors especially you know such as um self concept self confidence uh, uh locus of control uh, how musicians are eva- evaluating themselves and how are they uh seeing the audience the context of it is important too for example, is it a solo? Is it a group performance? The importance of the performance? Is it a jury? Is it a concert hall? So this is some of the extrinsic factors. Depending on those and where the individuals stand, the, the anxiety can be debilitative or facilitative. For example, in 2004, the multidimensional anxiety theory was applied in a study on musicians and found that, and when I say multidimensional, it means in this theory states that uh, there is a, a cognitive anxiety and somatic anxiety, and uh, the somatic anxiety follows an inverted U shape, meaning that it's um, the, the performance is, is, is good when there is a, a, an optimal level of, of uh, anxiety, medium level of anxiety, and there's a bad performance or low performance when there is low or high levels of anxiety. And uh, cognitive anxiety is the other component of anxiety in this theory, um, does not follow that, uh, that U-shape, inverted U-shape, but it, uh, it follows a linear relationship where the anxiety is high, the cognitive anxiety is high, there is, uh, low low performance 
and the, the performance decrease, the quality of performance decreases. You talk a lot in your paper about, which we sort of just touched on now, the differences between multidimensionality and undimensional theories. So these are kind of what you were just talking about with this 2004 multidimensional anxiety theory. How have we seen these theories evolve in relation to the musician? Some uh, researchers have applied a uh, multidimensional concept of anxiety and also bidirectional, where it has the facilitative versus debilitative aspect of it, and others did not apply this kind of, of theories. Most of the multidimensional theories are traced back to Yerkes Dotson and Dotson Law that I just mentioned in the inverted U-shape, uh, and the others are, are just seeing anxiety as a debilitating um, and needs to be treated. So therefore, we have some theories, I mean, uh, we have uh, some musicians that, that, uh, or music educators have um, conflict results. So as they sometimes see that music performance anxiety is something needs to be eliminated, uh, others sees that, no, we need to develop some kind of uh, strategies to make musicians uh, experience the, the, uh, the positive aspect of it. And this literature have uh, suggested have suggested some strategies is to, to look at the teacher role in this. So again, uh, from a clinical, clinical point of view, this, these studies, even when using multidimensional aspect of it, did not really discuss the teacher role. Uh, a recent study, I don't remember exactly when, but it's called Teaching Stage Fright. The author was wondering whether teachers are unintentionally uh, implement this fear of, of performance and increase debilitating active of, of music performance anxiety. We don't know much about this because of this diversion. Uh, however, uh, yeah, so that's, I think that's what, uh, did I answer a question about that? I, I think so. I mean, you're segueing exactly to where I, I want to get to anyway, which is music teachers and music educators as potentially affecting music performance anxiety, I see a large pattern happening where we're teaching to the concert. So we're sort of building students from a young age to expect to have to perform. And I'm, I'm very curious as to even your opinions on that, that model. And do we see, how do we see that, I guess, affecting in the long term? Uh, yes, I mean, we want students to perform. We want them, more importantly, to have a good experience. And based on, on, on some of these studies, for example, uh, in 2004, it's suggested that self-confidence shift the uh, effect of anxiety from debilitating to facilitating. A uh, level of uh, preparation is very important. When somebody is really prepared, well-prepared and self-confident about uh, about their performance, they are more likely uh, to have a, a drive effect of anxiety. So they will, will, will probably perform well. Uh, whether we, as teachers, we, we don't want to overwhelm students and give them more than what they, uh, they are capable of, and push them to just, you know, push them towards a situation where they are just out there by themselves on that stage, 
performing uh, something that they're not prepared for so well. They might not only have a bad experience, but also they have post bad experience when they remember what happened to them. And then they just stay ruminating. They stay in that, in that loop. And then the next performance will be the same, and not, if not even worse. This, these theories and uh, this literature informs us in many ways. It's like, look at self-confidence. Look at uh, how do you see your students? What's your role as a teacher in this? It's just, do you have, I mean, is this your students? Some of them are shy. Some of them have trait anxiety. Do some of them exhibit? Do you, I mean, the more you know about this, you probably more to uh, build your strategies in, in a way that fits each student. Uh, those who are challenged and they want to be challenged, perhaps then uh, there is no problem with them to uh, to, to perform uh, in solo context, for example, versus those who are kind of shy have some levels of threat anxiety. So what this this literature suggests is a screening uh, protocol to see where there's the students at. Do they have uh, threat anxiety? Are they uh, prone to uh, debilitating anxiety than others? And accordingly, we, we can act accordingly. For for example, you know those who need more, maybe some, some students need a lot more time to digest a piece of music to to play it, so they have self self confidence in playing it, rather than teaching a piece of music and that's the goal. Just you know, in this semester, let's play this. You know, with that's your goal, just to play this piece of music at the end of the semester. Whether maybe maybe not all students you know, will will perform well like that. Yeah, I think that's a great example. When you said screening protocol, my first thought was auditions. Um, <laughs> yeah, because that's, I think, typically how we think to do our screening to find out who wants to rise to the occasion or who's doing the preparation. Do you have suggestions to alternatives to that? How would you, I guess, screen kids in a, or, you know, even young professionals in a less stressful way? Well, yeah, the literature suggests that under in circumstances of an audition, uh, it's, it's, it's one of the highest situations where students uh, might, might experience anxiety. We're taking this into account. This would, should have in a prevention situation. So we should train students to be in a situation like that. The, the, it's, it's not to question where, where the, I mean, if, if the audition itself it could be a problem. I mean, this is, this is the way it is. We, we do have auditions right now and we, uh, this is how, you know, some teachers pick, pick students to, or accept students to certain programs. And, you know, knowing that someone, you know, failed the audition because of, you know, high level of anxiety, uh, it is sad indeed, but they might, you know, perform really well if they're not in that situation. But I don't think we should look at it this way, but in a prevention way. So instead of changing the way of, of the audition peers, which of course, there's maybe some, some ways to, to listen from the uh, effect of the audition. You know, for example, we know that audition generates high levels of, of debilitating anxiety or, or facilitating in case of somebody who's really 
prepared. But for those who are prone, we know that the situation generates a lot. So maybe we can make it easier a little bit by uh, talking to them and just make them relax and just, you know, this is make it sound that this is not the end of the world. It's just a, and I've seen this happening before. But however, it's we have to, to approach this from a prevention point of view. How? What is the steps that we can, we can take to prevent this from happening? From happening in an audition. Again, we go back to the intrinsic factors. We go back to uh, self-efficacy, self-confidence. What is the process that we're doing to elevate self-confidence before? Uh, go to audition what 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 are the teachers doing uh, what how are the students behaving uh, how what 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 is the role in in studying a piece of music in particular ways that uh, enhance for example memory or increase self confidence these are the things that we don't know much about yet and needs indeed we we need to to to, to start uh, you know conducting research and rigorous one and to to find answers to these you know uh, there's there's a lot to be done but again just just approaching it from this angle prevention um preparing the students in a way that they want uh, experience such such debilitating anxiety and if they do before and to, to find out first uh, if the students might experience something like that. You know, you can see that some students that you're teaching or somebody comes to you and say, hey, I have a problem. Some students say it, some students don't. If they don't, I think it's, it's on the teacher's responsibility to find out and accordingly act. Um, and again, we, we don't really... That's the whole problem. We don't know so much about this. We don't have well uh, established, you know, research and strategies to 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 apply. It's more uh, based right now on uh, uh, individual experiences rather than uh, research, scientific based research. I'm curious. We've talked a lot about the role of the teacher. I often think um, the way like a great athlete would and athletes seem to come with like multiple coaches as well as now mental health professionals. What do you think the roles or the support team should look like for musicians who might be dealing with this? Should they be seeing mental health um, therapists? Should they be, you know, building relationships with other sorts of teachers or coaches? Or do you think it's a very close sort of one-on-one -on -one thing with the teacher. Uh, usually, uh, yeah, it, it's good that you mentioned the athletes because actually the, the multidimensional anxiety theory came from sports psychology um, originally. The, uh, the students, well, research says that the relationship and the, the mentor-mentee relationship is important. Usually students with uh, high levels of uh, debilitating anxiety go to their teacher. They don't visit a clinician for the first time. In fact, in fact, in general, uh, people with, with any problem or psychological problem, there's less, there's, they don't, they don't visit. Unfortunately, they don't visit a psychologist, but, um, the, the first, um, person to to go to is the the, the teacher the teacher and they start to 
um, ask the teachers or talk to them about the problem. And teachers, you know, from their experiences, not knowing so much about uh, music performance anxiety, uh, they might, if if the teacher is well uh, educated about that, they might, you know, give some advices. But most teachers, they, you know, must say, hey, you know, perform more, expose yourself more, do this, do that. But still, the teacher have limited um, knowledge that teachers could benefit from from actually uh, talking to psychologists about that. So there's collaboration between them and vice versa. If the student go to a psychologist and the psychologist sees that as a most likely psychologist, I mean, as, as we saw in this uh, paper or this uh, literature review, most psychologists will, will, will deal with MPA as a problem and they will start to give them advices or treatments or interventions that, uh, you know, probably based on cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, such as they have to rethink about how they feel about the performance, but um, I don't know how much, you know, how, how does this work exactly? And they might uh, apply their own knowledge to, to solve this problem and just try to eliminate the anxiety that they have this way. But I think that neither neither this or that, and that's the big problem that we're having, is where does the, the, the student go? Who knows? I mean, who is in right now in music psychology? Do we have even clinic for musicians? You know, there's some, some, some universities have, some countries have, but there are very little. Uh, who is specialized in this and really, you know, tell the students where to go? Is it good to do yoga, for example? or to do mindfulness practice? Or is it something related more to how you learned the music? How, how, how is your lessons are going? What is your behavior? How are you learning this piece? What is the teacher telling you to do? Maybe the psychologist does not have this, this aspect, this, the musical part. As we saw in, the, uh, in this uh, literature review that we did at UNT, Texas Center for Performing Arts Health, I actually included uh, in table three here uh, the attitudes that the researchers from both disciplines, music and psychology, have been. For example, here we have the author, Kendrick. It was in 1982, a psychologist saying it is certainly would be easier to teach music teachers what they need to know about attentional training than to teach psychologists what they would need to know about music. And I don't agree with this personally. I think that uh, psychologist uh, it is not hard to actually know a little bit about how musicians learn music and how they perform and what are the contexts. It's not, you know, it's something learnable. On the other hand, we have psychologists that in 2005 stated that no, it's actually good for psychologists to know what musicians are doing. They would benefit from that so they can build their interventions accordingly. There is, I mean, I'm sorry if I'm, I, I feel like I'm not giving you an answer of what we should do because we don't really know that we, I can, we can, we have a clue, um, you know, but that's the problem that we're facing. We need uh, the students to have a, a, a clinic that is directed 
and um, established for them, for musicians, some of the measurement scales, for example, to measure anxiety does not even measure music performance anxiety. It measures general anxiety or social anxiety. Some psychologists don't even believe in music performance. I've entered, I've actually talked to somebody recently who doesn't like the term music performance anxiety at all. Psychologists, you know, clinicians, he prefers to call it social anxiety. He's like, I don't, I don't know, it's just a social anxiety where the research tells us this is not just a social anxiety. It might even happen uh, in a room when somebody's practicing by themselves might actually have experience of some anxiety. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. crazy. I can't. I mean, uh, an article just came out in Rolling Stone this last week. I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, the tour health initiative study being done right now, but um, they just had some great quotes from uh, from a doctor up there about about artists on stage and the and the way that we're basically it almost looks like the equivalent of a panic attack state except it's being induced by voluntary circumstances which i thought was just i mean i was like yeah that's that's what's happening um one thing you mentioned earlier and i kind of want to close out talking about it a little bit but you talked about the effect of rumination on following ensuing performances what would be some steps for musicians who feel like maybe they're stuck currently in the rumination cycle of, of ways to break that? Oh, uh, well, again, I, I'm not a psychologist. Uh, and I actually, I mean, unfortunately, I cannot give you, uh, I mean, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm more interested uh, in the models and the theories behind this, but actually what to do to treat this is more of a, a, a psychologist uh, 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 intervention, but uh, there is with rumination. It happens when when there's an, a bad experience happened, and then and then here's when somebody is susceptible um, and have a like a very vulnerable and have high trait anxiety, uh, low self confidence, ec ec uh, external locus of control, for example. Those are more likely to stay in the loop of bad performance so look what i did i don't know if i'm i don't know I, next performance is going to be the same I'm, I'm not good enough and i think based off on that research and personally believe that it is a, it's more of uh maybe part of psychological treatment based on cognitive behavior therapy and also music training and go back to the teacher and see what uh, is happening to 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 get you out. Like maybe let's play an easier piece. Maybe let's go together and perform more. Maybe let's improvise. Maybe that's the thing. We don't really know how, from a musical perspective, can someone can come up come out with this. It's not evident. It's not supported scientifically to draw a conclusion and a solution that this is what we should be doing to uh, get somebody out from this situation. And there is no one definitive answer, but there is there is an attempt to to do more research and to come out with, with, with better solution, collaborative research. Both musicians, music educators, and uh, clinicians should collaborate to get out, to, to come up with something with a strategy to get out from this. 
you know, maybe, uh, hey, see what, what kind of music we're playing. When did this happen? Did, did this happen before because of what? What, what did we do? Did you, did, were you given a complicated piece that you did, could memorize? You could, you know, all this needs to be inspected carefully and look at the trait, uh, the trait anxiety levels and, uh, and how the, the person thinks is about think about themselves and think about the music they do. Do they believe in what they're doing? Even the musician identity. Uh, what is your musician identity? Do you have a low musician identity? Do you have a high musician? Do you consider your, yourself a, a classical musician? Do you consider yourself a commercial musician? You know, all all this needs to be investigated and put to question. To, to come up with rigorous answers. Boy, I love that idea of musician identity. I feel like that could be a, a whole nother conversation, but I do want to thank you for your thoughts on this and just the, I mean, the hope that we're going to have more collaborative research being done is really, really what I hear coming out of this. We'll have, of course, information for people on the blog and the show notes so that they can go ahead and find your research um, and connect with you if maybe they're interested in sort of this collaborative research effort. Um, other than that, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about what you heard here, check out the website musicianhealthresource.com where you can find links mentioned here to locate our guests as well as helpful blogs, our online store, and other information. And of course, please take a moment to subscribe and leave a review if you haven't already. This helps boost the appearance of this podcast and searches in the algorithm, allowing a greater audience to be reached with this information. Thanks for listening to Musician Health Resource, and we'll see you next time.